but I happened to be listening to it one night. It was the first night I heard this album, and it was the uh, the theme from the movie Silverado, which is Western cowboy. And there's this big horn call at the beginning of it, and it just like like woke my heart up. And I was like, oh, I, I want to. That's me. Like that th- that's life for me. And I'm not, I don't have that right now. And it was like that was the beginning of getting out. Hi, I'm Josh Chambers, and I'm Leif Parton, and welcome to How Humans Change. Every episode. We speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change, and we get the backstory. This week, we spoke with Dane Walker. It's hard to characterize the exact change we discussed in this podcast, and I think that's how change often works. Everything changes, uh, and yet it's hard to articulate what exactly has changed. It feels huge and tiny almost at the same time. One thing is clear. Dane went from being a fundamentalist Christian who was supposed to become a pastor to being an open-minded Christian who became a composer. Dane was homeschooled by fundamentalist conservative Christians, and as one does who's indoctrinated in that environment, he became a Rush Limbaugh junkie, joined a cult, and went to seminary. Unlike many stories from that community, Dane left the cult and got kicked out of seminary for doing the right thing. As Dane put it, change is a series of awakenings, and he's unique in his ability to remember and articulate those moments of awakening. One time it happened in an orphanage in Russia. Another time, walking in on his pastor, fooling around with his girlfriend. Another time, when he moved to Boston and could no longer get Rush Limbaugh on the radio because apparently Boston has some kind of a filter on conservative talk radio hosts. I don't know. We didn't have time to explore music and its influence on Dane the way that I would have loved to. I am a music lover. It's probably my favorite thing in the world. And there are a number of times in my life that I can look back and remember a song or a moment where music completely changed my perspective. Sometimes it was a concert, sometimes it was just my headphones, but I think it's incredible how different things speak to different people. And I think I want to be the type of person who can cultivate the capacity to be spoken to by different things in languages that I can understand, and to be the type of person who can articulate things in languages other people can understand as well. I found that inspiring. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. Please subscribe and consider sharing this with one friend this week. And if you know someone who's undergone some kind of change, please let us know at howhumanschange.com. All right, without further ado, here is Dane Walker. Why don't we do a little bit of, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, and I know it's kind of weird talking to two strangers, but the context for the call was we were chatting someone, I don't even remember the details precisely, but one of Tim's friends on Facebook had um, responded to him in a, I don't remember exactly how, but I responded back, and then you responded, and there was this chain of fairly civil comments going on Facebook, but that were disagreeing. And you had said something along the lines of, it's amazing what happens when you turn off talk radio. And I was like, whoa, did that happen for you? And you had said, yeah, actually, that is what happened for me. So um, I was really intrigued by that idea and what took place for you. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I grew up in a uh, religious fundamentalist conservative home. And um, Republican politics is the the that's what you have to do in that sort of home um and uh, you know the um 
so Rush Limbaugh, I kind of figured out about him about the time uh, Clinton got elected. Uh, I was 16. Um, and when Bill Clinton got elected, it was like, oh, there's this guy, Rush Limbaugh, which is kind of when the world was kind of figuring him out. So, you know, mm. I think it's weird that we always have these two opposing forces. Whoever's in office, there's this other voice over there that everybody listens to. And then and it kind of swings, right? It goes back and forth, back and forth. And I think mm-hmm. now we've reached a point where everybody's kind of figured all that out. And especially us younger folks are like, shut up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was working for an accountant. Um, I had, this was after I left Minnesota where I'd, I'd hung out with Tim. Um, and I spent about five years working as a junior accountant. And I was very unhappy, weighed about 200 and some pounds. Um, wasn't exercising. It was just terrible. It's just, I was unhealthy, unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I realized, um, you know, music is where it's at. It's always been where it's at. And I haven't been really pursuing that because I was afraid. And so uh, my wife and I moved to Boston. And my boss had listened to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity all the time. It's like you couldn't do accounting without, you, know, <laughs> you couldn't count your numbers like okay it's 12 o'clock here it comes you know i can even sing the theme of rush limbaugh all the time so it's like it was on so and i enjoyed it so what i would do is i'd listen to sports radio in the morning and then i would kick my radio over to rush limbaugh because then our our radios are in sync in the office and so it wasn't disturbing and you know and i'd listen to him and then um then he would have sean hannity come on i can't i've never liked sean Hannity. i can't stand that guy so Mm. i would flip over to uh his for, as a musician, just his main theme that starts the show. <laughs> just makes I'm like, that's so retarded. And then I turn on, you know, this other thing. Uh, so I would turn on. I'm, I out. Think some... I'm out. I can't do it. This score yeah, is yeah. terrible. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. So as I, I flipped the radio, I would go listen to these. Um, it was another talk radio show, but it was out of Chicago. And it was mostly humor related stuff. So okay. I would flip over to the show out of Chicago after Rush was over and listen to that. Um, and... Uh, yeah, but you know, being in that environment um, where you're just hearing Rush all the time, um, I, I, if if I were in a room with Rush Limbaugh, I would be like, oh, this dude's cool, you know. Like as a person, I would find him interesting. And, and from a political standpoint, I think he's very constitutional. Like I think he understands the Constitution very well. But from a um, political standpoint, from a um, uh, I just heard Stephen Colbert say this so well. Um, from the standpoint of punditry, yeah, he's just a jerk, mm-hmm. you know. And there's no thinking outside the box of his punditry and his audience. And so his demeanor is just, just kind yeah, of... yeah. And so you, he... and you and you as a listener, I picked up on that, right? So I started to carry that edge, like, well, you know. This oh, is, you know, you know what I mean? Like, and so when yeah. I get into a debate with somebody, I would come from that angle first. So right. I take all of that and I move to Boston and guess what's really hard to listen to on the radio up there? <laughs> Rush. Like you can't even find him. Like if you find him, it's like, do you think you know, they have like, they just have like a network around the city. Oh, there are, circling yes, it there to are, prevent there it are liberally controlled drones that go around and follow your car as soon as you turn. <laughs> um, so I couldn't listen to it, and I I was busy. I was busy at Berklee College of Music, okay. and I was rediscovering my real joy and passion in life, which is music. So I was happy, mm. so, which I think is part of it too. But I was happy for once. For you know, I'd always been happy, um, you know, in life. But in terms of pursuit, life pursuit, and, mm-hmm. and 
what I was made to do. I never could kind of grasp that. And so I was at Berkeley and I was loving life and I didn't have time for Rush. So, interesting. Um, but I found that the way I interacted with politics was still from that angle. And then the more we lived in Massachusetts, the more friends I made there, the more I personally started to experience like being poor um, and different mm. things like that, the more I started to go, wait a minute, you know? And as time wore on, you know, now I can't turn that on. <laughs> I can't, I mean, somebody's like, oh, I heard Rush them, but I, my eyes just go back into my head and can't come back, you know? It's, yeah. It's, because it, you know, because because it's such a I mean think, thing, or what's that? Well, how so? Just because it's so just like aggressive and yeah, I think it's because I my wife says I love debate, and I don't love debate from the perspective of proving who's right and who's wrong, but from the perspective of figuring out what ideas are true and what ideas are not true. Um, and so um, when I go hang out with people and they start to debate or argue a, a situation and I engage, my wife always stands back and watches because uh, if you attack my idea, I'm willing to listen unless you say something stupid like, well, Rush Limbaugh says. And at that point, it's like, well, you're not arguing your own perspective now. Now mm -hmm. you're arguing something you learned because you listen to the radio all the time. Um, and I'd much rather somebody said, well, I read this book or I, it's like this and then use an analogy or something. So once you, I think, what the problem I have with Rush or Sean or any of these guys is that, um, and like I said, Stephen Colbert said this the other day, punditry harvests emotions for profit. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, so these yeah. guys are, you know, if you're having a debate and somebody's listening to Rush or they can't think clearly, they only think through the, the veil of whatever those yep. Rush or Sean have presented to them. Yeah, there's these really concrete barriers and walls that say stay stay here stay within this this room and don't right. ever leave and if something leaves you're just like well the what i'm hearing you say is the demeanor of those guys they don't respond with curiosity empathy or kindness they respond with their fists their verbal fists like the, yeah, we're, I, we're exiting yeah, my comfort me. zone yeah right yeah and and um and 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 I think that's a human condition, right? Like we want to feel safe. Like we want to feel that we know what's right, and we don't want to feel that we that we're wrong. We don't like that. I mean, it's you know, it, we feel mm -hmm. unsafe. We're insecure in that moment, and um, we all go through that. I tend to find it uh, liberating to get into that place where I'm insecure because then I know I'm going to figure something out. I don't doesn't mean mm -hmm. I I enjoy it. I just know that. Oh, I'm about to learn something that I didn't Got know it. before. Um, so fast forward. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do two things. I'm gonna ask you to fast forward to now and talk about okay. what the big shift is. And then there's a bunch of stuff you mentioned. I want to go back and and talk through. But now, okay. however many years later, after you had this realization that I don't want to be like this and I want to think differently, what would you say are the big distinctions between you now and you listening to Rush? However many years ago that was. Okay, so I would say the big distinction now is when somebody presents me an idea, I look at the merits of the idea first, not what someone would, you know. So if somebody says to me affordable health care or a socialistic health care program or something like that, well, I'm going to look at that and say, well, maybe that might work, as opposed to, well, that's just socialism and socialism will never work. You know? <laughs> and I, I lived, the funny thing, I lived in the former Soviet Union for three years. So uh. I have seen how socialism works. 
And it still doesn't bother me to discuss a socialistic program because, you know, I, ideas can work. We can make them work. They don't have to be, we don't have to like have, it does, it's not black and white, you know. You know what I mean? So like do you people, find yourself like thinking through more uh, the intent of the program? So you're more willing to uh, be open to different programs because you are thinking through, oh, I see their intent. Whereas maybe previously the rush side of things never really wants to even consider the intent. So in healthcare, for example, the intent is let's take care of a lot of people, but it never even gets to that level because it's, let's trash the program. Is that what's right. happened? So intention is a hard thing to gauge. I, I think for me, it's more like, instead of just somebody saying, well, that's a socialist program and writing it off, I'm much more interested in saying, well, I, I'm much more interested in saying, well, why won't it work? Instead of just saying, it, so let's just write off, why won't it work? Or, and then why will it work? And because of being in Massachusetts outside of this conservative vacuum that I was in, I was able to discuss it with people. And I remember I had a conversation with somebody on Facebook when, when uh, Obamacare, when the Affordable Care Act passed, and he said, this won't work because there's no government option in it. And I was like, what? And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I was like, he's right. He is exactly right. This program is not going to work because there's no government option in it. It was just, it shored up the insurance industry. Mm-hmm. And um, it was kind of one of those, light bulb moments where it was like, wait a minute, you know, I'm looking at this from this whole other perspective over here, instead of considering all these other things over here. So so, one point, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you begin to shift from thinking about things from whether or not they fit my ideology that's been taught to me, to a perspective of whether or not the idea has merit purely on the, on the idea itself. So, right. Right. Is that, is that a good, is that a good summation of some of the big, like that big shift? Sure. Yes. And I think, you know, for me, um, and my faith, I've come to the point where I can't just rotely accept something because, well, all Christians are supposed to be this political worldview or, or this, you know, persuasion or whatever. And so it, 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 that means that anything's open to me, you know, any idea is open so long as it works, you know, so long as it does what it's supposed to do and it, and it fits within, you know, um, what I think my faith would want. Um, and that, so looking, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, so that, that, you know, so the affordable care act, those things sitting in Boston, I was able to start to go, well, wait a minute, these people have a point. And I would say the other thing is this, this issue right now, of the Confederate war sat- statues. Um, I, I think if you'd have asked me 20 years ago, I would have defended keeping the statues there, as, which is weird. You know, I'm wondering if, if that's accurate. 20 years ago, would I have said that? I don't know. I think I would have kept my mouth shut, whereas now I'm passionately about getting rid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll defend that. And then the other one would be um, police brutality against African Americans. I think 20 mm-hmm. years ago, I would have been on the side of the police force, and yeah. I would have. And I would have been like, well, these guys, you know, these black people, you know, they're being the stupid ones. They're the ones that are instigating this. As opposed to now, which is the conversation we were having with Tim, I'm much more inclined to say, wait a minute, yeah. there's an issue here. And this isn't black and white. And, you know, and I think was was there a police officer arguing with us in there? I don't I don't know uh, if he was a 
I don't remember well enough, Dane. I just remember an individual being adamantly opposed to it, but I don't remember if he was a police officer. Yeah, because so Tim and I have a mutual friend that went to church with us up there, and he is a police officer now. And so whenever Tim posts something, this guy pops in, and I'm I'm sensitive to uh, him. I see. He's obviously, he's a police officer, so he has a different perspective that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested in hearing what he has to say. At the same time, it's like you know, there's a problem here, and it's it's a big complex issue. And instead of us standing up and being like, well. You know, the police officers are the ones in the right because they are, you know, yeah. instead of doing that, standing back and saying, wait a minute, this is this is kind of weird. We have all of these black people being shot to death, you know, and, and there's no justification and it doesn't make any sense. And then the police are getting away with it. What do, you know, this is a different issue than this yeah. black thing. So, um, you know, one of the things that strikes me is a hot topic right now culturally is empathy. And sure. a lot of people are talking about empathy. Do you view your shift in some of these views as tapping into your empathy over the years, or is it more about merit? I'm curious why maybe 20 years ago you weren't there. Yeah, I think it's both. I think there is no empathy in a um, black and white culture. You can't be empathetic if it's Fund, if you're a fundamentalist, whatever, if it's religious fundamentalism or political fundamentalism or whatever it is, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't operate um, with empathy because you can't feel. You have to go with this mentally intellectual law. Did you think, you, were you, a, that's very well said, were you an empathetic person and you just needed to get out from under the shackles of some of these Fundamentalistic yeah, ideals. I, grew, I was always the kid that like felt sorry for people, you know, and uh, was in, you know was inclusive, um, you know, and and um, that was sort of protected. But I think just like anything, if you if you get you get this idea that well, I have the right way to fix those problems. Yeah, and you can start with empathy, but you end up without empathy you know, at some point, you know, I mean, not to use a Star Wars reference or anything, but, you know, Anakin wants to do the right thing and then he ends up becoming Darth Vader, right? Right. You know, but, but, I mean, you can start feeling empathetic, start feeling like I'm going to solve this problem. Um, And then you, you will ultimately end up not being empathetic because you will lock in on this is the only way to solve this or this is the only way to care for this person, or this is the only way to do this. And then now you're not operating from a basis of empathy and feeling, you're operating from a basis of law. I'm curious uh, about your uh, earlier, Dane, the, when you were talking about moving to Boston, how many changes were happening at once. And one of the common <laughs> themes we talk, um, when people come on the show, there's, it, it seems like there's often a burst of change. Yeah. And had it, had it been one change, um, maybe, just, maybe just changing jobs, the impact on their worldview, on their paradigm, on their life would have been smaller. But sure. what you're describing is you moved locations. You decided, I want to get into music again. I want to pursue my life's passion. Sure. And you leave this geography of uh, not only a location, but the the ideologies that come along with it. Do you think that was at play, all of those different things all at once that allowed for you to have a new perspective on things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, I had just gotten married. We just had a baby. We moved. I was turning my back on 
worldview of life that, you know, I, that had been a slow process, but moving to Boston was me finally saying, okay, I'm shutting that door. Um, shutting what door specifically? The, the sort of leaving behind the fundamentalist, religious, conservative view of, of life. I kind of left, um, I'd left a cult five years earlier. Um, it was kind of struggling in between. And then this was kind of my way of saying, okay, I'm giving I'm all of that up and I'm, I'm rejecting that and I'm taking a new path. So, so the move was kind of the, the end result of a lot of things that were a long time in the making. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think change is a series of awakening, right? Like you awaken to one idea and then it awakens this other idea and then it awakens this other idea and then it awakens this other idea and you do something and then it awakens another idea and then it awakens another idea. Yeah. You know, you see what I'm saying? So it's this constant thing. And um, so, yeah, moving to Boston was an explosion of change. We had, I went from being surrounded by conservative political people to Oh, I'm so alone. <laughs> I mean, Massachusetts, I was just like, oh, I can't open my mouth about what I think in this situation. I might get killed, you know? Yes. I mean, not really, but it was uh, it was interesting. That that makes sense. Can you tell me the way you phrased it, one little awakening? What was the first awakening, the first chink in the armor in all of this? You were in a cult. Let's talk about that. And you got out of it. So what? Yeah, so the first, the first chink thing? in the armor was... Um, Man, there's so many chinks in the armor. I yeah, mean, if, tell, if I go back, it, it's so funny. It um, When I was 12, my parents got involved with this cult. Uh, they were homeschooling us, and they, they took on this homeschool curriculum. And then that became sort Bill of Gothard. my... Say Bill Gothard. Yeah, Bill Gothard. Yes, yeah. it was Bill Gothard, yeah. And um, so then that changed my whole worldview, of course, and I, I was hardcore in that. And then I went and worked for Bill Gothard in Chicago. Wow, um, you went all in. Oh yeah, totally. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, mean, I was 12 years old, living in rural Blacksburg, Virginia. <laughs> I had very, very. I really didn't have any friends in high school. In fact, I had no friends in high school. Um, and so you homeschooled in high school. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. um, I went, went, worked at his headquarters, and then they let me leave headquarters. They they basically laid me off, but you didn't get laid off then. You got sent home. And uh -huh. they did that because they were, I, they basically said, well, <clears throat> you're not, you're not, you, you know, you're not the type of person to be here. But really what it was is they didn't have enough money to pay me to be there. So they were laying people off, but they were spiritualizing it, which is kind of how they do things. Well, that hurt, yeah. right? Like, well, I'm doing all the rules exactly as you tell me to. And you're telling me that I just don't qualify. Like, so I worked harder, right? And then I ended up in Russia working for them for two and a half years, which was great. Um, I enjoyed that experience. I didn't enjoy the rules, but I enjoyed that, that experience wow. because, because it was, and that's where the real chinks in armor came because now I'm witnessing, you know, the former Soviet union, I'm interacting with people who have no concept of, of Jesus. They have no concept of the gospel. They have no concept of, of faith in some cases. And now I'm watching them experience it. And I'm looking at all of these things that Gothard's got going and I'm suddenly like, these don't that's not going to really help these people. This is just a new uh, form. Um, it's going to help these people. And the classic case was we were living in this orphanage. And we had this um, juvenile delinquency program for these Russian kids who were juvenile delinquents. And um, one of the orphan, we were at lunch and there were five juvenile delinquent kids and they were all required to wear suits because everybody had to wear a suit. 
And uh, this one kid, Andre, refused to wear the suit. He kept getting in trouble because he didn't want to wear the suit. And uh, they were, he was always in trouble for this. So he's wearing the suit. He's, he's kind of the rebel. The other four juvenile delinquents were always complying with the rules. And I was just watching out of the side. So this one little tiny orphan girl was walking with her tray from the lunch uh, counter to her table. And she hit one of these loose tiles and just flung that tray and then slammed face first into the tile. Oh, no. And um, she's screaming. And I looked over at the juvenile delinquents and the four juvenile delinquents that never got in trouble and were always complying were laughing at that little girl. And the guy that was the rebel walks over, puts his tray down, picks this girl up and helps her start cleaning up. Guess which kid got kicked out of that program first? That guy. Wow. And that was like the first like light bulb Oh, we are so screwed up. We have our wow. rule system so much that we can't look at the heart anymore. We only look at this outward appearance. And it like it really just stabbed me, you know, in the heart. Just like this is whacked. Like we're this is so wrong what we're doing here. Um, so something got was getting through in your early years that compassion and kindness is a part of this religion that I'm being raised yeah, so, so what I, I always tell people, my, my parents became Christians when I was about four. And we moved to, we, we were down in Charleston, South Carolina. My dad was in the Navy. And we moved, he was given a, a teaching position at the Naval Academy in Maryland. And so when we moved to Maryland, they got into a Presbyterian church. And the Presbyterian church at, at that time, it, I mean, everybody's doing this now, but back then they were the only church that talked about grace and compassion and that God loves you. So I had that as a foundation Got in it. early years. So from 7 to 10, 11, I heard that message very clearly. God loves you. God cares for you. Jesus died for you. He loves you. Then we go into Gothard, and now it gets twisted up for me. So now it's God loves you, but he chastens you. So if you, don't, if you want to avoid his curses upon you, do these things. Yeah. Obey this person. Do what, you know, authority is important. If you don't do that, God will strike you in order to bring you back under his, his authority. Well, that makes everything all whacked. Gracious. But the passion, love thing was still my instinct. I never abandoned the idea that God loved me. It wasn't conditional. It was unconditional. And the reason to be afraid was if I get out from under this authority and don't do what they tell me to, God could smite me in order to bring me back, right? So, um, yeah. yeah, that... That was always there. It's just that now it was that moment with that that little girl and that that juvenile delinquent was the moment when it went, whoa, 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 whoa. So what did like, you do with that? You come back home or you you're like, this is off. Something's off. What happened next? Well, I stayed there. I'm trying to think if that was my last year there. Um, I realized then that Gothard wasn't for me. So I was I stopped being directly involved with them. And then I was trying to get into music. I was eight. No, I was 20. I remember. So you're out of school at this point, and leaving Gothard, was that a problem for your family, or were they supportive? Well, Did it so matter? One of the things that I think um, a lot of the people now in, in the, a lot of these recovery and support groups don't ever talk about, but it's true, you grow out of it. Like, there's no options for you at some point. So at some point, you have to stop. So now, now there's just kind of reality hits. It's like, now I can't be involved with the organization because... I mean, they asked me to come to Indianapolis and run the orphanage there as the the second and as the right hand man for the orphanage in Indianapolis. And I said no, 
because I was 21, 22, and I was going to have my own car. It was one thing to be in Russia and have all these rules about, you know, you can't go out of the compound and, you know, da, da, da. Well, that, right. that's, uh, that makes sense. I could get killed and they need to know where I am, you know. But now yeah. I'm in my country and everybody speaks English. And I had family in Indianapolis that lived there. And they're like, you can't leave the compound and get in your car without asking for permission and telling everybody. And I was like, I'm 22 years old. This yeah. is stupid. I'm not doing this. So, you know, that you kind of grow out of it. The worldview doesn't leave you, but you grow out of having to be directly involved because reality kicks in and you can't really keep doing it. Now, some people can because they always have a, you know, they have a job and they're getting paid. I wasn't getting paid and right. uh, I wasn't getting freedom. And I wasn't being treated like an adult. So I said, you know, forget See ya. it. Yeah. So what uh, was the next little awakening or the next chink in the armor that well, you can The remember? next chink in the, I mean, you know, there's so many of them. I'm just giving you the philosophical ones. Music played a big part for me all along. Um, when I was at headquarters, when I was in Chicago, there was a piece of music that came on on my CD. And it, it was like, oh, that's the person I was supposed to be. And that was kind of the basis. Hmm. Um, and so all these other things kind of feed up. Uh, I heard, uh, in fact, I just wrote the composer and he sent me a very nice note. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, we you know we had all this approved music, right? And I don't know how this album got into the approved list, but I happened to be listening to it one night. It was the first night I heard this album, and it was the uh, the theme from the movie Silverado, huh. which is Western cowboy. And there's this big horn call at the beginning of it, and it just like like woke my heart up. And I was like, oh, I, I want to. That's me. Like that that's life for me. And I'm not, I don't have that right now. And it was like that was the beginning of getting out right there. Wow. I had trace. I I just recently was tracing stuff back, but um, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and that weird. Yeah, music. it's so it's so interesting because I feel like so many people that we talk to in my own life as well, there are these just random moments in the most random places that this is part of the reason we started the podcast. I'm so curious how that penetrated in and got past all of the walls and how this one little unique thing. It shouldn't have. I remember for myself, there was a moment where I was on a snowboarding forum of okay. all things. I was in my early 20s. I'm on, a, I'm on a website talking about snowboarding and politics comes up as it always does on late 90s, early 2000s forums. Right. It just right. it devolves into politics and faith and people yelling at each other. But some for some reason, this one guy, this was right when the Iraq war was starting, just in caps locks screams, wake up America. This is an unjust war. And I, I, it was a lot of it had to do with my environment and what else was going on, but it got through. And it, and I just remember sitting at my computer thinking, huh, why is he so passionate about this? Right, right, right. What is this? And it, it sticks out to me as this moment that this probably a troll ranting got through to me in the most random way. And it's like, speaking my language. I'm on, I'm on the computer. I love digital technology, right. it's snowboarding. And all of a sudden it just like, just gets past all of the walls and armor and, and makes it into something deeper. And I'm like, how right. the heck did that happen? Right. And it is interesting to me. I mean, music is my language, right? And that's that horn call. And it, what I, I keep going back on is how had my music listening devolved so far that I hadn't heard something like that until that moment, uh, you know, that, that, that was the moment that was like, Oh, I don't want to keep, this isn't, I have, this is it right here. This piece of music, this is yeah. this thing. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, it changed my life. That that I listened to it on repeat on my disc man that whole night. I fell asleep listening to it. And uh, wow. so that was really the beginning that set me on this path. And then the tray with the kid. And then the next thing that happened is in the in the church. I had come, the church that Tim and I were a part of started a seminary. And my parents, because of Gothard, were really like, you know, you shouldn't be in music, you know, you should be ministering for God and you should be a minister. You're so good at public speaking, which I am. You're so good at all these things. You should be doing this. Now, I love God. (laughs) I love the Bible. I really do always have. I love the Bible. I love the stories. I love everything about it. I love philosophy. I love intellectualism. So being a pastor made sense. Like, and uh, then I read, I read, you know, that proverb in the Bible, a wise son, um, makes glad his father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. And of course, right. being an author, it was like, well, if I displease my mother, she views me as foolish, so therefore I should do this. So I quit. I was in music school. I quit music school to go to, oh, no. to, go to seminary up in Minnesota. And, the, you know, it's interesting. Russia, I had freedom. The first time I was really allowed to be myself, I wandered around this foreign city and country by myself. I wasn't under the watch care of people all the time. And Minnesota, I had my own apartment for the first time. I had a roommate there, but I had my own apartment. I was allowed to make choices about what movies I watched on Friday night. I was allowed to make choices about what I did when I got up in the morning. All these things weren't dictated. So you have, in, in all of these changes, you also have my own personal freedom coming along with it, right? Like, um, yeah. so, um, yeah, so. In so Minnesota, sorry, so that, that taste of, I, I don't want to. I'm going to cut you off because that taste of freedom you were experiencing, what did it do for you? Was it kind of like, oh, wait, I'm okay without the rules. Huh. I don't make stupid decisions. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I was still in, in both Russia and Minnesota. I was still under these this, this Gothard sort of mentality of fundamentalism. So it wasn't like what, what it was more like is, oh, look, I can make decisions by myself and, I'm, and I enjoy them. Right. So I started yeah. to test the waters. I watched rated R movies. You know, oh, I was no. I was supposed to. But what was I the did first rated R movie you watched? What was the, the first Matrix. rated R movie you watched? The, the Matrix? Matrix? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I, it wasn't my choice. My roommate was like, oh, dude, you got to see this movie. It's that's such Matrix. a funny like, first choice. Rated? He goes, R, is that going to be a problem? And I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> not a problem. Well, the funny thing is he worked. He worked for the church too, so he wasn't supposed to be doing that either. So it was just like it was our thing, right? It was like we're just gonna walk, we're not we're gonna discount these. That's amazing. Yeah, of course, dude. And what an amazing movie to see for your first one, because that's sort <laughs> right. of like this metaphor for what's happening in your pill. life. Yeah, oh. I didn't know that at the time, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we were, you know, I viewed it as like choosing Christianity, fundamentalism, so Christianity funny. versus being a part of the world, you know? Yeah. But but uh, yeah, now looking back, it's like oh my goodness. But uh, yeah, so the Matrix. Yeah, so I just started doing things. I started, you know, testing the waters a little bit because there was nobody there to smack me up. My my mom and dad weren't there to be like, you know, don't do that. You know, were you, you scared just, when you were trying these new things? Were you feeling rebellious? What was going through your mind? I think initially, yeah. And then as time went on and I was like, I enjoy this, then I didn't worry yeah. about it. Um, the big thing that happened there was I start, I secretly started, uh, dating a girl in the school. Um, and then that really got my conscience. Like I started to Uh not, I didn't sit well with me. And so I went and confessed it 
but which the, which part the fact that you were dating or dating secretly um i think the dating and the dating secretly wouldn't have bothered me but we started making out and then that was like you know I I, see. the first time i'd made out with somebody so embarrassing to talk about that but it was the first time <laughs> I, ever made, I made out with somebody and that made me sick like i felt uh, yeah, like sorry. sick to my stomach that we had made out and uh i didn't know how to deal with that and it was sitting on my conscience and i wanted that to go away i mean that's you know, watching a rated R movie doesn't physically impact you. You know what I mean? Like you have, you can, you know, have emotions or feelings in the movie, but ultimately in the end, it doesn't really do something to you. Whereas you make out with somebody, there's a physical thing that's occurring and you're causing something to someone else and they're causing something to you. And now you feel very guilty and you can't really get, you know, um, clarification. You feel guilty about that if you're taught to feel guilty about that. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, and, and that type of guilt, especially in that community, the anything that's sexual at all, that type of guilt is the worst kind of absolutely. guilt. Absolutely. So I, uh, it's a long sort of detail, but to phrase it correctly, I figured out that this girl and the head of our church were having an inappropriate relationship. Um, huh. So they kicked me. The girl out you of- were dating. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, I I caught them. Yeah, that was fun. Oh boy. Oh my gosh. Um, so not only not only sorry. So not only are you like you're getting cheated on, but you're you're yeah, seeing you know, this. The irony is, I didn't even think of it that way. I still really that funny. So it for you is just like her and him doing something inappropriate, but it didn't even enter your like your brain that I just got cheated on. Never. Wow. So I, um, yeah, it still doesn't. I don't even view it that way. Cause it, cause what it, I really figured out was this girl has problems and she's using all of us to solve her problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was using me as a distraction from this guy. So I didn't realize I, the thing that occurred to me was I didn't matter to her anyway. Like it was almost instantaneous. It wasn't like I being cheated on. It was just more like, Oh, this is a game to her. And I'm uh. not even, I'm not even part of it. It was, yeah. I'm kind of blessed that that's how it happened because I don't know if I would have survived the other part. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they kicked me out of the school. When they kicked me out, all of my friends, Tim Frost among them, they were like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Dane's one of the best students here. He's working for this church. Why do you have him doing this if he's this horrible person? Huh. So they started running the math and it caused a split in the church. Um, and it took a year for that to take fruition. And then there was a big church split. People split off, da 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 oh. long. But when I left there, that's when I, be, that whole trauma and how I got treated was when I started to say, okay, wait a minute, I've done everything right. Yeah. You know, I cleared my conscience over this thing that I had done wrong. Meanwhile, this guy was doing this horribly evil thing, you know, behind everybody's back and is a complete hypocrite. And he's survive. He's surviving, and I'm the one that's hurt. right. Um, and then that made me stand back. And I, I went and talked to. I, I literally contacted my old Presbyterian minister from when I was a kid in Maryland, and I asked if I could come see him. We were going up to Maryland wow. for my grandma's funeral, and he said sure. So I right before the funeral, I I drove over and met with him for an hour. Told him everything. I said, "You're the only pastor I trust at the moment." He just kind of looked at me and he said. Well, great, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but he handed me a book called Transforming Grace. And when I read that, that's when 
I realized, oh, okay, this fundamentalism, this legalism, this stuff is wrong. And that's not even how God operates. And it's this grace thing over here. It still took five, six years to leave all of that behind. Yeah. But those were, the, those were the big chinks along the way. Um, wow. How did you, how, since then, so you moved to Boston, you get involved in music, you reshape your life. How long has it taken for the barbs of that fundamentalistic cult to remove themselves from your brain and your heart? Yeah, it's, it's every day. You know, um, and I think it's because, you know, we're, we're living with my parents at the moment. They're not here, so I can talk about this. But, you know, there's scars and there's baggage. Mm-hmm. And I go through that every day, even when I'm not around my parents, my mom especially. Um, you know, and so, you know, my, I'll have an argument with my wife and she'll look at me and she go, I'm not my I'm not your mother. Mm. You know, and it's like, oh, and I, yeah. I realized that my whole view of uh, women was impacted by that. My whole understanding of so subconsciously, yeah. there's a lot of stuff in there that I have to sort of like work with and sort of and it I have a great wife who's very patient. She was in the cult, too. So she gets it. So it wasn't yeah. like it was out. Um, luckily, we met after we both left. So it was like, oh, we had this common ground. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so you know, to have, um, to have her there being patient is very helpful. But we, we did, we went to our pastor in Boston and was, I was telling him and he's, we were coming down to North Carolina, which is where we are now for, um, for a summer. And he was like, I have a friend down there. I want you to get some therapy and we're going to, the church is going to pay for that. So we went and had like sessions with the therapist and, um, yeah, it was great. We had eight weeks with this guy and, um, he was just so, he was really funny. Like I, I loved how one time I said to him, "Yeah, I figured out that if you that I, I was telling him in my youth about something, I was like, "Yeah, I haven't figured out how to fix this." One of the things that I struggle with, Gothard always had this way of proving what you're supposed to do next, right? Like this is how you determine what God yeah. wants you to do. And it's all these things. Yeah. Well, when you throw that out, now how do you? <laughs> right. And you're kind of like floundering, like what? Yeah. It's like Dumbo when the feather flies out of his you know nose. He's like, oh, I can't fly, you know, and. And the, yeah. you know, the, the mouse is in there. No, you can't fly. Really? really. You know? <laughs> it's like, that's me. Like I had figured out this way of like determining my destiny and now that was gone. And I, I didn't know how to make decisions. It, it was just a very scary process. And so I was telling him how I had figured it out. And I just remember he looks at me and he goes, that's a really cool trick. <laughs> <laughs> and it's terrifying like, oh, to go that from that really black cool and white. <laughs> Jeez, man. Yeah, I mean, and what I've realized now is like it was avoiding suffering. Whatever yeah. path took you to avoid suffering, that was the next step. Like, so here as a musician, like there's a lot of risk involved in this. I mean, right yeah. now, financially, it's really hard. And so every day it's like, do I want to keep doing this? You know, I have four kids. I'm not yeah. pulling in the G's I need to be pulling in. You know, what what am I going to do about this? Yeah, and, it, and it's a real struggle. But, you know, having in the previous life, I would have been like, I need to quit this. And every day that sits there, like, this is your fault. You made choices. You chose to do this instead of this other thing. You chose to, you know, go this other path. And, and living with my parents isn't making it any easier because they're kind of sitting there kind of like, Hey, you know, it's not really up for you. You need to get it together when you get it. Yeah. yeah. And man, I gotta say that, that, um, I, I, 
came out of a, um, not quite the same, but had similar experiences growing up and that, uh, shame and guilt are just the tools and weapons of choice in that community. And anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, like it, it had an answer for it. Usually the answer was heap more guilt on you, make you feel worse. But then there's this outlet over here, go pray a bunch or go do this thing over here. And it's going to assuage all that. And then you grow up and you realize there's some stuff I just can't, this is going to have to live with this discomfort for an indefinite period of time. Sure. It's yeah. awful when you grow up feeling like, okay, I don't feel good about this. Okay. I've got a solution over here. And then to right. just realize that doesn't work when you're an adult. Right. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't work when you're a kid either. You just don't know. Yeah. You know? Cause you have mm-hmm. the secure, you know, surrounding to protect that. You never break out of that. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so every day I deal with the barbs of that cult. Mm. The beauty, I think the beauty of it is knowing that's what they are. You know, well being said. able to say, you know, oh, those are just barbs in the fence, that these are scars, these are this is baggage, that's what it is. We can move on. For me, it's an ident- identifying thing. Once I identify what it is, I'm fine. Um, Interesting. Can, doesn't mean it's doesn't mean it goes away. It's just I mentally know what it is, so it's a lot easier to deal with. Um, can you give like, me an example of that without maybe being too personal? You can say no. I don't. I can't think of a good example off the top of my head. Um, well, let's switch gears then into life now that you're detoxing from this still, and it will likely be a lifelong process. You're figuring sure. out, do I want to be a musician still? Can I do it this way? What does life look like? Um, still getting mentally the voice in your head, I'm sure that says you, this is your fault. You, right. you took a step off the quote unquote path. You've got people right. in your life that may be still telling you that. What are you doing with that now? How are you living through that? And what does life look like interacting with the paradigm that's more open and kind and compassionate? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was more open and kind and compassionate. That's the, I would say that when you get to that paradigm shift, you realize you need to be more open and kind yeah. and right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what is that like now? Uh, it's hard because I've started to realize like I can't wade into as many Facebook arguments as I have in the past because it it really eats me up, right? You know. Um, so some boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I lost it recently on Facebook over the Confederate thing. Um, what eats you up about it? Dane, would you mind talking about that? So, give yeah, me so, so this, this relates to, in Christian fundamentalism, most of the homeschool curriculum related stuff is racist. Mm-hmm. It's racist at its core. So if you're going to, if you get high school and you're going to study biographies of famous people, they're going to throw Robert E. Lee's biography in there. They're going to throw Stonewall Jackson's biography in there because these are godly people. And then, and, and so at, at its core, this Confederate statue thing to me, is is two worldviews in America coming to a head and they don't, you know, the right doesn't realize it, you know. Mm. Um, now, I have conservative friends who want the statues to come down too, so it's not just a right-left issue, but but, yeah. when, but when, when I listen to, to uh, some of my former fundamentalist Christian friends defend these statues, I'm like, do you not realize what you're doing? Yeah, it just eats me up because we're sitting around defending some statues and we're not listening to the people 
that are mm. being hurt by. And, you know, as a musician at Berkeley, one of the eye-opening things for me was I began to, one of the reasons I chose that as a school was because I got to learn music I hadn't experienced before, very contemporary music. And what's at the core of contemporary music is beats that came over here from Africa through the slaves. Mm. And so we have blues and rock and jazz and rap and funk and all of this amazing music available to us now because of that boiling pot of slavery and to me why don't we celebrate the greatness of that art and celebrate the joy that has come out of this horrible thing by getting mm. rid of these these insulting statues you know with terence blanchard who's a great trumpet player and a great composer who i admire he grew up in new orleans and it's like he's talking about i why is that statue there i'm like get rid of the statue you know, and these people are like, no, it's our history. It has to stay there. No, 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 no. I'm like, you're fanning this awful historical crime in the face of these great people who you yeah. listen to on the radio every day. How can you? How can you do that? And so it just eats me up from that perspective. Have you um, found a way to? Um, we just did. Oh, let me pause and I'll. I'll Finish that thought in a second. We just released an episode on racism in America. Yeah, I saw that. I didn't listen to it yet, but I saw that. Well, we normally are doing podcasts like this where we're just hearing someone's story, but we've decided every now and again we might take a specific topic and instead of hearing an individual story, we'll just analyze it, assuming this does need to change. And there are things in our culture, in our society that unequivocally do need to change. There's no subjectivity about it. Right. So when you took a topic like um, the about like racism and some of the things that are attached to that, like these monuments, there's some things like, well, you know, gun control, no gun control, right versus left, you know, give or take. Maybe that's a bad example, but there's some things that maybe are a little bit. Uh, I guess you could say, well, maybe both could be right, but then there's other things like this one where you're like, I don't just don't yeah, see how. No yeah. There's not a whole lot of, uh, this one does feel a little black and white to me. So when you are reaching back out into that community that you've come from, have you found a way to effectively engage and communicate and start to shift opinions? Yeah. So the hard thing for me was, I think for me, debate is how I figure things out. And so I finally realized this particular issue, I had to quit debating it and I had to go make sure I knew what I was talking about. So I went, I stepped back and I read a bunch and a bunch and a bunch of literature and made sure I knew what I was talking about in order that when I get into the argument, and I think this is one of the things about, you know, it goes back to the Rush Limbaugh talk radio thing, right? Like we all think we know what we're talking about because we very quickly read some article on the internet or we hear some guy on talk radio or we watch Fox News or we even watch CNN or whatever it is. We think we know the subject now because we saw this thing. Yeah, decided that that thing is, ha, has some sort of authority over us and therefore it's right. Um, but we never actually internalize ourselves and go read the source, go figure out what the source says. And so for me, I had to first come with peace with come to peace with that in my own mind and say, OK, I actually know this subject. So once I was in that place, then it got a lot easier not to get angry and sort of lose my mm. You know, lose my cool in a debate, which makes it easier because then you can ask you can ask questions as opposed mm -hmm. to making statements, mm -hmm. um, and that's the way I go about it. Which is, I just ask the question a lot of times, like, um, why did the South secede from the Union? 
And I always love the answer back. Well, it's very complicated. You know, all these mm -hmm. words. And then you just break it down. You still didn't answer my question. What was the specific reason that the South seceded from the Union? And when you get them to the issue of saying it's slavery, that's when you're winning. I've never gotten there yet. Nobody wants to admit that on that side. Yeah. Because well, that's what's so that, interesting they realize to me. that they're in the, that yeah. they're wrong. And that's what's um, so tricky about um, engaging people who are very rooted ideologically mm -hmm. that it's um, really hard to know how to, and if you should even try to shift opinion or have them think differently, because there are things, like I said earlier, I mean, having, having a, um, an ulterior motive or having a, uh, plan for a friendship just kills it. That doesn't that doesn't breed real relationship. But at the same time, geez Louise, if somebody says something that's straight up wrong, you're like, well, mm, that's I'm curious if that if that's worked or if you say, you know what, Facebook doesn't even work or asking questions. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I mean, I think asking questions works because I think if if I think asking questions is that opportunity to plant those seeds, those chinks in the armor, right? Like that's the chance we can have to be that guy on your forum that was like, wake up America. This is an unjust war. Like, yeah. you know, if you can ask the right question, you can get them to step back. And, and well, one of the times I was on Tim Frost and that police officer was talking, that was one of the things I said as I asked him a question, well, how do you think we should fix this problem? Hmm. Long pause. You know, it took a long time for there to be a response. And when he answered yeah. the question, it was a lot more calm than his defense pr previously, right? Because he's suddenly admitting, well, yeah, there is a problem and I don't know how to fix it. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, okay, see, so now we've put a little hole there so that he's, you know, he's going to think twice before he, you know, but he's also now thinking about it as opposed yeah. to defending his you know, police brethren. So there's some, there's a, there's a, there's a big shift for you from the, um, that fundamentalistic world of convince them to believe this. You have right. to convince them to believe this to, well, if I can just plant a tiny little seed of doubt, maybe that'll take shape and do something else somewhere down the road, but I don't have to be the arbiter of whether or not they've changed their mind. Yeah, I think so. And I wish I could say it was always that way, but yeah, I would say so. Got it. Um, so shifting. I, I, think, I think the fundamentalist convince them to do something is a human condition, which is why oh. fundamentalism is so attractive. Um, yeah, that's a human condition is to be right and to make sure everybody knows you're right, mm. um, convinced that you're right. And so that usually means you're wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mm -hmm. mean, it usually, and at least in my experience, if I'm mad and arguing and pushing and bullying, well, it means I'm weak in my argument somewhere and I'm probably wrong, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so it's, it's easier to say, well, I, I, I found that I better stay out of a, a conversation because I probably don't know as much as I think I do. Yeah. And, therefore, and that's why with this, like with this issue with the statues, it's, it's easier to say, well, I know I'm right in this. And so then when I know I'm right, it's a lot easier to be, to engage, to engage. Yeah. yeah. So, um, shifting and last question for you, what would you want someone to know who might be going through this experience themselves? Maybe they're 
18. Maybe they're 35. Um, wow. I think the number one thing is that, that, that this is life. And so embrace it embrace what you're going through because this is life. This is important and you can get through it and you're not alone. Mm. Um, I was just reading a testimony of this, this, uh, Muslim who converted to Christianity and he was describing his conversion. Um, he just died of cancer. And he was describing his conversion and he was saying he was at this moment in his room where he realized he needed a change. And it was just, he said he was in agony for months. Mm. He was fighting in himself. He was just in agony. And, and I, I don't, you know, his conversion, whatever, that's his thing. But I think that's how it is for any of us when our brain is shifting. You're waking up to the truth that something you did before was wrong. And you're waking up to the truth that this other thing is right. And it's very disconcerting. And you feel like you're jumping off a cliff. Mm. And you don't have a parachute. Um, and I think I'd want them to know there's a parachute. Mm. And that's fine. You know, it's like, uh, you know, snowboarding or, or, you know, dirt biking where you come to the edge of that cliff. And then as you go over, you realize it's yeah. not all, you know, there's, you know, there's bumps and hills and it's going to yeah. be, yeah. It's, well, I like what you said earlier, too, about whether or not it's working for you. So shifting it from this idea that, well, this is black and white, right or wrong, to this doesn't work. This just does not work right. for my life. It right. brings me no joy, Absolutely. value, anything. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that don't work for my life that I still have, you know, because mm -hmm. they're, you know, it doesn't work for my life not to steal money right now, you know? <laughs> 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 but I don't steal money, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. But we yeah. we keep them because they're right. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, like, there's all these areas, there's all these things. It's like, well, that yeah. doesn't. Why are we doing that if it doesn't? Why do we have the health insurance industry if it doesn't work? Yeah, no, it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, so anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, man, thanks so much for talking to us. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks for it's giving me the opportunity. To we're going to make sure that we put some of your um, content or at least where to find you on the blog post. Okay. Um, so why don't you just quick tell people and then we'll make sure it's in the post. Where can people find you and hear your music? Uh, if you go to danewalkermusic.com, um, yeah, they can find my music there. Um, if they look me up on SoundCloud at Dane Walker Music, go okay. to SoundCloud, type in Dane Walker Music, you can find me there. Um, and I have albums on iTunes and Amazon. You can get them there. And awesome. yeah, those are the places. Awesome. 